consider what it is like to be a genius. Seems pretty desirable, right? Being able to master entire subjects, rewrite paradigms, and not only envision what was a complete mystery or thought impossible, but to manifest the unknown, do the impossible, and make it seem easy. Sounds like winning the lottery at first. But think about your day-to-day -day as a genius when you're not in whatever ivory tower you go to where your genius work gets done. How do you hold a conversation at dinner when your mind is constantly focusing on things too complex for all the people who are not on your level? How do you handle it when so many people are uncomfortable with your genius or too much in awe to interact? Or worse, they treat you like a freak show. Genius can be a handicap as much as a blessing. The ivory tower genius example given here is just one type, or to be more precise, one stereotype. In the 1940s, people might have recognized composers like Mozart as a genius, but no one was looking at banjo players as having that potential. The instrument was not even at the forefront in string band settings, like fiddle or even mandolin. Banjo players were often playing rhythm in between telling jokes on stage, not inventing melody. Consider another type of genius, the humble genius. The term smacks of paradox, someone who is both grounded and able to reach the stars, someone who can pass as, you know, normal, someone who has the wisdom to balance their superhuman giftedness. Think of the infrequent genius that you could sit down to dinner with and talk about everyday life, a person who would gladly relate to you on your level. Specifically, a genius where that mode of interaction, of regular daily living, was always reward enough. As Mozart said, someone of superior talent will go to seed if they remain in the same place. Luckily for all of us, Earl Scruggs took his talent to the world stage and revolutionized music in the process. He remains the gold standard for banjo players and bluegrass music especially, and like Mozart, people will be studying his genius for ages to come. But at heart, he was an unassuming native of rural Cleveland County, North Carolina, who, as you will hear in the stories from our guests, was the kind of person who never met a stranger, in the right setting at least. We talk about that and so much more with Scruggs contemporaries and disciples Pete Wernick, John McEwen, Jim Mills, Sam Bush, Allison Brown, Jeff Hanna, Kristen Scott Benson, Travis Book, Earl's nephew J.T. Scruggs, and even my dad who brings a glimpse into what a Scruggs family gathering was like in the 1950s here today on Southern Songs and Stories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is our episode on Earl Scruggs. Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music bands deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music bands to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. For his 99th birth anniversary, WNCW honored the late, great Earl Scruggs by sharing portions of interviews with artists who knew him 
as we broadcast stories ranging from brief encounters in young adulthood, like Sierra Hull's Memories of Earl, on to years of friendship and collaboration with guests like John McEwen and Pete Wernick. These conversations were rich and deep and helped me understand Earl Scruggs as the man in ways that were at turns surprising but always inspiring. I asked everyone here essentially the same two questions. Tell us your favorite memories or stories about Earl and talk about his impact as an artist and how that legacy continues since he's been gone. Well, it adds up to three and a half hours of audio, and it should be no surprise that there is a ton of gold to be mined in all those conversations. Here is a synopsis, a sampling of everyone's thoughts, insights, and memories. Our episode today hones in on the stories that reveal Earl Scruggs as a quiet and kind man who was in so many ways the same farm boy and mill worker from the foothills of western North Carolina, even after living in a mansion in the heart of Nashville. Plus, there's plenty of talk about the enduring legacy of Earl Scruggs, whose namesake lives on in the form of not only his vast catalog of recordings, his songwriting, and revolutionary playing style, but also in the Earl Scruggs Center in his home county, housed in the old county courthouse in downtown Shelby, as well as the Earl Scruggs Music Festival, which began in 2022 and continues Labor Day weekend in 2023 in nearby Tryon, North Carolina. To begin, here is a bit of backstory on the making of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, the Watershed 1972 record anchored by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and boasting a who's who of bluegrass and country icons of the generations preceding them. Its 42 songs became a kind of echo of the Big Bang heard round the world when Earl Scruggs helped trigger the explosion of bluegrass music still reverberating a generation after his debut with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Will the Circle Be Unbroken saw Earl Scruggs pivoting in new directions with his playing style and overall sound and helped make younger generations aware of icons like Vassar Clements, Jimmy Martin, and Mother Maybell, among others. That collection was pivotal in how it shaped the Roots music scene for everyone thereafter, and it's important in the Roots music world is hard to overstate. During that session, as John McEwen of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band told us, most of the artists were on a lunch break when the studio engineer found a workaround for a passage of You Are My Flower, a classic from the A.P. Carter songbook. Mabel Carter was still on hand, so he simply had her recut the passage solo and spliced that into the otherwise fine tape recording of the full band playing. As McEwen says, it was one of the first edits in bluegrass recording, which was typically recorded with full bands playing live with no overdubs or very many microphones for that matter. Here's a bit of You Are My Flower, followed by conversation from Nitty Gritty Dirt Band founding members John McEwen and Jeff Hanna. You know, his 
legacy is out there that every banjo player, every five string banjo player has spent time learning from the Earl Scruggs songbook or, you know, from the records and stuff. And that has influenced their playing. Bela Fleck, Nolan Pakelny, Tony Trishka, they all got started because of Earl and his influence. Uh, Bill Keith, Doug Dillard. Doug Dillard heard Earl on the Opry and it got him started. I heard Doug Dillard in a club and that got me started in 1964 or three, something like that. And uh, Earl's legacy is often overlooked in the guitar playing department. He liked to try to play. Well, he tried to play like Maybell Carter, you know, the thumb and the finger scratch thing. And uh, the Carter scratch, they call it. And he attributed to Maybell Carter, I got a lot of ideas on how to play uh, certain tunes from Maybell Carter. And I would say, well, how did you do that? Well, the way she'd play the melody. And and he got some good approach on his banjo playing from Maybell Carter's guitar playing. I live in Nashville, and I've lived here for a very long time. So in addition, again, to being, uh, you know, music, uh, being associated through music and recording and performing, we became friends. So. Uh, Earl would have these great parties, these pick and bir birthday picking parties, he called them. So on his birthday every year, he'd have these, he'd open his house up and bring in a bunch of you know, great food and great friends. And that everybody'd sit around and play for several hours at Earl and Louise's house. So those were incredible. Um, just getting to, you know, really getting to hang out with him and, and the stories that he told were phenomenal. And, you know, and it's through Earl that I got to meet folks like Tom T. Hall, and, uh, Mac Wiseman, and certainly Maybell Carter. It was Earl that really uh, brought up the idea of Maybell being on the uh, on the first Circle record. And we were thrilled because we were all huge fans of the Carter family. And she was a very in influential guitarist for me. I mean, she was one of my first guitar heroes was Maybell, the way she played that Carter style stuff. And Earl played that really well. Uh, he was a really good guitar player. I love that about Earl. We touch on Earl's innovation with emphasizing melody lines in his banjo playing later in the episode with conversation from Pete Wernick, whose first memory of Scruggs was a performance in his native New York City when Wernick had just begun playing banjo as a young teen. All of our guests have vivid memories of their time with Earl Scruggs, and some of my favorite examples come from banjo great Jim Mills and Pete Wernick. Here's Jim Mills. Jim Mills, banjo player, banjo trader, and uh, huge Earl Scruggs fan. He's my all-time musical hero in the world. And uh, just, uh, I guess if I had to pick one, you know, with just getting to know your hero is a wonderful thing. A lot of people say, oh, you never want to meet your hero because they never live up to your expectations or sometimes it turns out that they're not the person you hoped they would be or thought they would be. And I can honestly say, getting to meet Earl and his family and knowing him through the years. He was absolutely everything and more that you could have hoped for. And some of my favorite recollections, if I had to pick anything, would be some of the short visits I had at his house with him, just maybe me and him there by ourselves or me and him and his son Gary and sitting around and talking about stuff when he was kind of just uh, – Earl was 
kind of a quiet fella, reserved fella. A lot of times uh, you would go over there and there'd be a crowd of people and people had cameras and video recorders and microphones and doing interviews and stuff. And he was, I would just sit back and watch. And he was somewhat reserved in that he'd had stock answers for kind of things. But these few times I got to go and really sit down and just, uh, he, could, he could be himself, you know, and speak freely. That was some of the, the memories I'll remember forever. So I had spent some time in the South, and I was comfortable among the um, the farmer types, the, the blue-collar type people who were really the heart and soul of the bluegrass um, community. And so I'd play a set with Hot Rise and go off stage, and there'd be people to talk to, and a lot of them were farmers from North Carolina. So when I started realizing, well, Earl was like a farmer boy from North Carolina, I'll just act like he's one of them, which I did, and it felt so much more natural because he turned into from a god into a human being and just to you know be in his house and talk with him about all kinds of miscellaneous things and not just the art of banjo playing uh it was it was a huge delight it's probably one of the highlights of my life that i ever got to know earl scruggs and um um his his way of being he was just he was low-key, but, and some people thought he hardly ever talked because he didn't talk much on stage, but he could really talk. <laughs> he and Louise and I would just talk for long periods of time about the music business and having a band and just life in general, and, and Earl always had plenty to say about it, and even though he was, you know, he, he was not the kind of person who sort of tried to do social climbing when he talked. But once in a while, if he had something negative to say about something, it would come out in a funny way, like, uh, that guy's, that guy was sort of one knife short of a full set, you know, was one of his expressions. And um, uh, I found that whole, his whole way of being uh, just gentle and thoughtful. So it was really wonderful for me to be able to call up and go over there when I was in town, which was fairly often. Um, and uh, one time, this stood out to me, this is years, in his very in his later years when Louise had died, but I was visiting him in his house, and uh, he says at one point, he says, uh, you, want, uh, you want an onion and milk? And I didn't really know what to think. I, I probably said, what? He said, uh, onion and milk? And I couldn't imagine wanting to eat that, so I just said, oh, no thanks. He says, you want a Coca-Cola? So I said, yeah, I'll take a Coca-Cola. So I'm drinking my Coke, and he takes out a big onion, bigger than a baseball, and um, just chops it all up and puts it in a bowl, pours milk over it, and he starts eating it. And he basically, that was a meal for him. He finished that, and I thought, I've never seen anybody eat an onion with milk before. And it just kind of amazed me, and I didn't want to get all worked up over that in front of him and say, well, I've never heard of any, I've never seen it on a restaurant menu or anything. But then it occurred to me in time that he grew up poor. The father of the family, he had uh, five kids, and he died when he was, when Earl was four. Earl was the youngest, and so here's the mother and five kids, and they live on a farm and they've got a cow and they have a garden so they can have onions and they can have milk 
and whether that was a delicacy of the uh, Cleveland County uh, menu uh, back then or not, it's just something that are always able to get his nutrition from growing up, and I'm sure he ate a lot of onion and milk uh, growing up, and it just underscores how a kid from the Bronx where you just didn't eat onion and milk gets to, thanks to bluegrass music and the banjo, gets to meet all these different kinds of people, and I just thought it was really neat that I got to be uh, with Earl when he was eating onion and milk, and I might add that this is, by this time he had moved from a kind of a normal middle-class sizable house to a true mansion that had been um, owned by George and Tammy Wynette, George Jones and Tammy Wynette. And it was like 11,000 square feet, and it had white carpeting, and it had chandeliers in a lot of the rooms. Um, and here was this guy from a little, a little house in Western North Carolina, and now he's living in this incredible um, mansion. And, uh, but he was still the same guy. <laughs> I don't think that Earl Scruggs had a song about onions or milk or even cornbread, but Flattened Scruggs made a hit out of this kind of corn, the kind that makes moonshine. Here's Hot Corn, Cold Corn from Flatten Scruggs' landmark performance at Carnegie Hall in 1962, with Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, joined by cousin Jake Tolick on bass, Buck Graves on dobro, Paul Warren on fiddle, and Billy Powers on guitar. Upstairs, downstairs, out in the kitchen. Upstairs, downstairs, out in the kitchen. See Uncle Bill just a rarin' in the pitchin. Yes, sir. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a dimmy John. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a dimmy John. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a dimmy John. Farewell, Uncle Bill, see you in the morning. Yes, As Pete Wernick pointed out, Earl Scruggs' roots were in farming, which, along with textiles, was a leading industry in Cleveland County, North Carolina, which was a leader among southern states in industry, textiles especially. Even today, Cleveland County has over 100,000 acres actively farmed, and when Earl was coming up, that figure was certainly higher. It was a simpler time, and life was never easy, but it was easily possible to be very good. Take this story, for example. It's from my father, Dale Kendrick who visited the Scruggs family regularly as a young boy. His father, my grandfather, was Earl's cousin on the Hamrick side of the family. And one of those visits saw both Earl and his brother Horace playing banjo together on the porch in the midst of the family gathering. We would get together with the Scruggs uh, fairly regularly, um, but that was the only time I remember Earl being there. Uh, I'm sure he visited you know, you know, as, as much as much, many more times, but we weren't there as a family uh, during those visits. Uh, back then in the 50s, people would 
you know, that was the thing to do. You went and visited relatives on Sunday afternoon after church. And uh, you'd sit around and talk and maybe have a glass of tea and, uh, uh, you know, talk about your uh, relatives of the past, uh, talk about the weather, talk about the weather was a big topic back then because so many people uh, in our area were farmers and obviously the weather was very important to the crops. So, uh, you know, you either worked on the farm, you worked in the mills. There was very little other uh, job, you know, except for the lawyers, the doctors, etc. Uh, people worked in the, uh, you know, retail, of course, but um, Shelby was not that big a town. Boyle Springs was not very, nothing like it is today. You know, Garden Webb was a, uh, was a two-year small Christian university. Christian college, you know, not the university it is today. So it was just, it's hard to conceive of what it was like. And that's 70, 70 something years, about 70 years ago. Uh, but it was closer to the time of the 30s and 40s than it was to anything today. One of my favorite stories was when he was a, in high school growing up. He'd never really been out of the region much. But Mr. Brooks Piercy, who was an agricultural teacher at Boiling Springs High School, was going to carry him on a field trip to Raleigh, and he thought, man, that is huge. And so he lived down near the river, and it was about a four, four-and-a-half-mile walk. But he got up early, and his my grandmother, his mother, gave him a quarter to have to spend that day. And he thought, man, here's a quarter. He walked up there and he got in the car and, and Mr. Piercy told the boys said, now, when we stop to get gas, you can get something to drink and, and a snack. And he said, we started out in that car and I thought he never would run out of gas. He said, we rode and rode and rode for hours, it seemed like. And, and of course, back then there wasn't no interstate, so they probably did ride a while. And he said, finally, he ran out of, he got low on gas and said, all right, I'm going to get some gas. Y'all can run in and get you something to drink and eat. And he said, I was able to get me a Coke and some peanuts. I got to spend my first quarter. But he said that was just uh, something that I'd never done. I'd never been out. I mean, uh, Mother and I took the buggy and went down to Cowpans, but we'd never been out, you know, anywhere in a car. We didn't have a car, and we'd never been nowhere. So, yeah, that was one of my favorite stories, I think, Joe. That was Earl's nephew, J.T. Scruggs giving us insight into Earl Scruggs' first trip outside the region. Not too many years later, Earl would go a lot farther than Raleigh. Here's Allison Brown with her favorite memory of Earl. Probably my very favorite story about Earl was the very first time I went to his house. I was in Nashville, and I was hanging out with um, Hiro Arita, who's a Japanese banjo player, a great banjo player who I knew when I was in college because he was studying it. Berkeley School of Music at the time. And he had a bunch of his buddies from Japan who had just come over from Japan to buy Earl Scruggs model Gibson banjos. And the plan was to buy the banjos and then play them for the first time in the presence of Earl. And somehow they had gotten access to Earl and they were going to his house. So I was able to tag along with Hiro and these other Japanese banjo players uh, over to Earl's house and um, sat in a big circle of, I don't know, there must've been 
eight banjo players and uh, Earl sitting kind of at the head of this circle. And we just all played while Earl backed us up. And I think the thing that struck me the most was just how it was really all about everybody else. It wasn't, you know, Earl was playing backup to all of these banjo players and just kind of presiding over it, but not needing to take the moment for himself. Um, and that really struck me. And then afterwards he, he took my thumb pick and he, I, I was just saying, you know, how it, the thumb picks get slippery in the summer. And he was, he took a pocket knife out and he scratched three parallel lines in the, on the pick where it hits your thumb and on the inside of the pick. And uh, just that was his trick for keeping it, you know, giving it a little bit of friction so it didn't slip off your thumb. So I still have that thumb pick. Um, and that's probably my favorite Earl memory. My name is Travis Book. I play with the infamous String Dusters, uh, among other things. And, um, you know, what? one of my, probably my most distinct and greatest Earl Scruggs memory was when the uh, when the Dusters played um, right before him at the Stagecoach Festival. And this was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. And he was doing the Earl Scruggs Review. And... Um, I just remember being, you know, at that point it was, it, it was, you could tell he wasn't going to be playing for too much longer. Um, and I was really, I was really familiar. You know, there's so much music to listen to. And so I hadn't, um, and I still haven't heard it all. Um, but, but I was really familiar with, with a lot of the early stuff and I was familiar with the, you know, big bang moment um, when, you know, Monroe enlisted, you know, him and Lester uh, in the Bluegrass Boys and the way that, that that was sort of the the real like synthesis of the Bluegrass sound that that that, you know, changed changed the course of history for all of us Bluegrass musicians. But what I what I hadn't really grasped entirely was um, how how far he had come from that through the course of his career as part of, of in, or I should say in the context of the Earl Scruggs review and how I just remember, you know, it was like, I, I almost, I was watching the show and it almost like didn't, it didn't compute. It was so much more kind of far out and dynamic than what I was expecting. And in, in the moment I was kind of surprised, but I left with, just this incredible sense of of respect for 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 this path that he'd taken that I felt like you know and especially once I started talking to my bandmates about it and 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 kind of understood a little bit better the history it was not necessarily the easiest career path for him to take um you know any artist that continues to sort of push and progress especially after uh, these really distinct moments of success, like he'd had, you know, with um, with some of these early banjo tunes and that Earl, that er, that early sound, and the and the and and you know, Flat and Scruggs making it sort of on the pop scene in the beginning to kind of come be, to travel that far from where he had started. I just thought it was like really, I thought that was really cool and very inspiring and very and very brave. Um, and I I feel like I learned a lot watching that show about about what it meant to sort of be fearless and follow, follow the sound that you hear in your head and to follow what, 
what's interesting to you um that that i i'll i'll never i'll never forget that and it's you know made a huge impression on me travis book of the infamous string dusters who are working on a tribute album to Flatten Scruggs, telling us about how far outside the bluegrass template that Earl could go. It can be a surprise to those who are mostly familiar with his earlier work with Bill Monroe and Flatten Scruggs, but Earl was quite the innovator and was open to settings with drums, amplification, and musical styles that bluegrass purists shied away from. Here's Sam Bush, followed by Jeff Hanna. Earl never stopped progressing. Uh, in his in his own way, especially like when he left Flat and Scruggs, or stopped, you know, when they stopped having the band, um, it uh, he he did it to play with his sons, and so he wanted to put his five string in new kinds of music that he hadn't put it into before. So I know you know some might not think that was a great period for Earl, but you know, yes, it was because he was making his banjo fit in with. Uh, the music of you know that his sons are making, and he wanted to again. He wanted to play new kinds of music. He'd been playing this stuff all his life, you know. And he was interested in playing with drummers and steel guitar players and and Vassar and and uh, you know they, I think they had Doug Jernigan on the road, the Scruggs Review for a while, and Gary and Randy were great musicians, and uh, so he wanted to be out there showcasing his sons. So you know we. He he was progressing and he was trying new things and making records with different people and uh and then still and then was going back on the road. So he never stopped playing. He used to have these Christmas jams at at, at their house, his and Louise's house, every year. And I got to be in quite a few of them. And it was just really, you know, just uh, all of us sitting around picking. And but you know, it's it's uh I I, I it it I would love to look around the room as we were in this big circle of a jam session and realize, you know, like all eyes are on Earl, <laughs> you know, we, it was, it was great. Cause he was a very gracious gentleman and, uh, and a truly wonderful ambassador for, uh, you know, bluegrass and acoustic music. Earl really st always stood out to me as a guy that didn't see musical boundaries. And I think as we look at the, the landscape in 2023, of, of, of music that we live in now, um, it's that open-mindedness and that in inclusivity and that, you know, uh, it, that was one of the coolest things about Earl. And I love that. You know, he was, he was happy to, to record with the birds or Elton John, Joan Baez. He, it, it didn't really matter to him. It was that old adage about there's only two kinds of music, you know, good music and bad music. And, uh, he definitely lived in the land of the former for sure, you know, and he could, he could hang, hang with anybody. And his plan was just, uh, he was, he was really, uh, so, uh, yeah, versatile as a musician. Tell me just one more time the reason why you must leave. Tell me once more why you're sure you don't Scared, and that's something I won't buy. So you 
show but more blues. And out of this talk about leaving is strictly bad news. So you settle down and stay with the boy that moves you. A bit of Some of Shelley's Blues by the Earl Scruggs Review, a Michael Nesmith song they recorded in 1971, with sons Gary, Steve, and Randy in the band, joined by Vassar Clements, Bob Wilson, and Jody Mathis, with guests Jeff Hanna and John McEwen, among others. Earl Scruggs exerted unparalleled influence on his instrument. It's impossible to name one player who so dominates the conversation about other instruments, unlike when it comes to the banjo where all roads lead back to Earl Scruggs. Here's Pete Wernick, followed by Kristen Scott Benson. Over a period of a year or two playing with Monroe, he had a lot more artistry in his playing and breathing spaces, and was always really good at delivering the melody very exactly like the singer sang it. And in my teaching, I've noticed a lot of places where I could say, look, Earl could have done, here's the way most people play Blue Ridge Cabin Home and they think they're playing it like Earl. But here's the way Earl actually played it, and the difference is he went out of his way to play it exactly like the phrasing of the words of the melody. And if I had a banjo, you know, I could kind of give you that example of it, but um, it, it just, he started the song differently with the grab of the strings because he didn't want to use the usual bump, 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 because the words of the song didn't do that. Um, so he was always trying to play the words of the song is the way he said it and um, having that kind of focus on reaching people by playing not just sort of the melody but the exact melody uh, really made a difference and made him more popular than a lot of banjo players who could do the, the avalanche thing but they couldn't do it as artistically as Earl where anybody who didn't know too much about music could still pick out the melody and if it was a good song, you'd want to hear that melody. So he was hip to that and stuck with it his entire life. And it's one of the things that sets him apart from his imitators. The, the imitators often use licks to cover up the fact that they don't quite know the melody. But Earl would make a point to actually play that melody. There's a whole museum, you know, dedicated to him in Shelby, North Carolina, and it's great. And, and I think it's... Um, you can't overstate the importance uh, for certainly banjo, but also bluegrass in general. Um, I, I've said before that I, I don't know of any other instrument where it's so rooted to the past. In other words, sure, banjo has evolved. I mean, we have guys like Bela and Noam who have just taken it to the moon and back. But within a bluegrass context, uh, bluegrass banjo playing hasn't changed that much, really. And the vernacular that he created is still the standard. So if you look at, um, we might all have our little twists and turns, but more or less, we're just trying to do the same thing that he created, uh, you know, in, in the late 40s and early 50s. And to this day, and I think this is the most remarkable thing about it. I mean, not only we're just trying to recreate it, but uh, he was 
making this up as he went. I mean, he was he was uh, writing the vocabulary and the pool of phrases and licks that we all still assemble together to make bluegrass banjo happen. He was creating that and still to this day um, executing it better than anyone ever has. You know, it's a, it's really a remarkable thing. And as far as uh, traditional bluegrass banjo players, oftentimes your worth is based on how well uh, you can do what he did. And all of us have tried and nobody's been better at it than him. So it's grown, it's evolved, certainly that's happened. But I'm not aware of any other instrument that has, within a, a bluegrass context, um, stayed the same as, as much as bluegrass banjo has. And I think it's a credit to uh, what, what he created serving the genre so well. It's just hard to improve on it. It's like he got it right from the start. Earl is one of the very few musicians who, whose playing was so brilliant and appealing that an awful lot of people just right away wanted to start learning the way this one person played. And I'll just drop some of the, two of the other names that I can think of. One is Tony Rice on guitar. There was a whole legacy of guitar players before Tony, but when he came up with his way of playing, every guitar player wanted to learn it to the point that if you wanted to sound different, you had to avoid playing like Tony Rice because everybody else was already doing it and it puts a special pressure on Tony. You're like, what am I going to do now because everybody sounds like me? <laughs> and so he didn't even have his own brother in the band who could play very, very similar to him. And uh, um, another guy like that, Jerry Douglas, uh, who revolutionized the way people play the dobro, and everybody started following in his footsteps. He that kind of bugged him a little bit, and he made a point of coming up with new stuff that they didn't know yet. <laughs> and I felt kind of bad for him because his popularity created a flood that kind of was he was having to swim around in, just like everybody else, just to sound unique. And those three musicians, the only ones I can think of who revolutionized an entire instrument so that everybody who played that instrument felt like they should learn how to do this particular kind of playing. See, that didn't happen with Monroe or any of them. A lot of people copied Monroe and wanted to sound like, be able to sound like him, but they wouldn't choose to sound like him all the time and use like his whole repertoire of licks as their own vocabulary, but that's what happened with so many players of Scrug style. Travis Book describes the process of approaching a tribute to Flatten Scruggs this way. In the process of putting this, putting this together, deciding on the repertoire and listening to these songs just over and over again, just having our minds blown and our, our heads like cut off by Earl would come in to take a break. And it was like, it was like the, the earth was shifting beneath your feet. I mean, just the power and the space between those banjo notes and the the tone of it all and to think as 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 John Hartford says that like he he made he made the whole thing up you know i mean it sounds like that and he made that up it's just it's just mind blowing i mean there's there's just there's really nothing there's nothing like it it's just so it's so cool and so inspiring <laughs>
This is the song that, along with the theme to the Beverly Hillbillies, did the most to make Earl Scruggs' name synonymous with the banjo worldwide. Foggy Mountain Breakdown was the theme song to the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde, which producer and leading man Warren Beatty handpicked for the project. Earl Scruggs was, by every metric, a genius of historical proportions. But when it came to describing his own abilities, when asked to comment on just how he made such magic on the five-string, he was in foreign territory. Here's Pete Wernick recounting his first experience seeing Earl in 1961. At that same concert, Lester was saying, oh, we have a book with pictures of the boys in the band and um, words to the songs, and oh, yeah, there's some stuff in there about how Earl does his picking. So I said, oh, I've got to see that book. I've got to see it, because I knew a little bit on the banjo, but nothing, hadn't really tried to tackle Scruggs style yet. (laughs) So I find the page, and this was sort of humorous to me in time, but it was on the day of. It was very disappointing because it was the page. It was one page, and most of it was chord diagrams that you could find in any banjo book of where the left hand goes, and it's not the special part of his playing, like banjo chords. It was what the right hand was doing. So he he has a little hemming and hawing under all this uh, these chord diagrams. He says, you know, a lot of people ask me how I do what I do, and I just do the best I can. And, Here's the best what I can offer you. He says, think of your thumb as one, your index finger is two, and your middle finger is three. And you go one, two, three, one, two, three, like that, and then things will occur to you. And that's all he said. <laughs> then said what he was doing. He just said what fingers he was using and that he would play them in a sequence, you know which anybody could do, but that was not very satisfying to go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, that's not what, he was doing so much more than that, sort of like somebody saying, I'd like to learn to speak Japanese, and somebody gives him one word and say, good, now you can speak Japanese, you know. Anyway, uh, what, what was behind all this is that Earl really did not know how he was doing what he was doing, and it almost sounds like an insulting thing to say, Earl didn't know what he was doing on the bench, and of course he he could do it. He was he was so excellent and masterful. But when it came to describing it or even um, spelling it out, like what sequences of notes he was playing, he, he he really wasn't good at that at all. And he didn't he wasn't comfortable about that fact because a lot of people wanted him to talk about it, and he couldn't really. He said this can't be written down. Turns out it could be, but. It took years before somebody ever wrote it down. And um, he also made a point of saying, well, um, I, anytime I try to show somebody something, I change it as I show it to them. Because, and he says, I can't, I don't know how, how anybody could play the same piece of music twice in a row and have it come out the same each time. And this is by this time I had gotten to know him, and I said, Earl, thanks to the book that you put out with all these transcriptions, there's a lot of people who can play Foggy Mountain Breakdown exactly one way, and they're never going to play it any other way, and they memorized it out of your book. And, of course, this is, you know, what's in the book is something that he did one day in 1949. And uh, he said, I always play different every time, and I don't know how anybody could possibly do that. And I said, well, everybody learns from me 
again. And he, he just sort of stared off in space at that point and said, yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> Earl Scruggs' greatness was never hampered by his lack of eloquence, but one key to his success that was not in the public eye was his wife, Louise Scruggs. Without her drive, determination, and business sense, Earl Scruggs would not have accomplished a great many things that he did in his life. For a glimpse of her role, here's Vince Herman of the band Leftover Salmon, interviewed in a live session on WNCW on the 99th anniversary of Earl's birth. Well, you know, we were lucky enough to get to record with him on the on the Nashville section uh, sessions record that Andy uh, that uh, Randy Scruggs produced, and uh, you know, we hung around and 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 got to loiter with with Earl and and Louise Scruggs for uh, for quite a while that day. Um, we recorded with Earl in the morning, and and uh, Taj Mahal was coming in in the late afternoon, and and uh, Earl had never met Taj, so we hung around for a couple hours just waiting to to see and, and and we got a lot of stories man you know louise uh scruggs was just a firecracker and got so much done she uh told me uh about uh the live at vanderbilt record uh and how that came about um vanderbilt had contacted her about getting joan baez to to come do a show at vanderbilt and Louise hooked them up with you know how to how to get a hold of her and at the end of the conversation she said you know we'd uh you know, I, you should really think about having my husband come and play. And the woman said, you've got to understand, this is Vanderbilt University. We will not be having bluegrass music at Vanderbilt. And a year later, the Live at Vanderbilt record was released, one of the best-selling bluegrass albums of all times. Here's to Louise Gruggs. She's a firecracker. Tis Sweet to be Remembered by Flattened Scruggs, recorded in 1951, closing out our episode on Earl Scruggs. It was remarkable to witness the reaction from all of our guests here, from their eagerness to participate, on to their many exceptional stories and insights. I've been steeped in roots music and have written about and interviewed countless music artists for decades now, but have never come across a subject so universally beloved as Earl Scruggs. He was admired for his groundbreaking musical accomplishments, of course, but he was loved in equal measure by almost everyone who knew him. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it when you spread the word about this series, and it's easy to follow us on your podcast platform of choice, where it only takes a minute to give us a good rating, and where it's an option, a review. This series is a part of the lineup of both Public Radio, WNCW, and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes on Bluegrass Planet Radio, at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. As I travel over this world, just to soothe my roving mind, tender messages I get from a dear one left behind. They were filled with sweetest words, that's what touched me when I heard. 
Never, never can I forget These are some things that she said It's sweet to be remembered On a bright or gloomy day It's sweet to be remembered By a dear one far away It's sweet to be remembered